You're listening to A Book at Breakfast with Mark Charlesworth and Chris Newton. Ho, 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 to the bottle I go To heal my heart and drown my woe Rain may fall and wind may blow And many miles be still to go But under a tall tree I will lie And let the clouds go sailing by Ho, 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 to the bottle I go To heal my heart and drown my woe That was, of course, The Hobbit's Drinking Song from The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien that we are returning to for our second breakfast. So that is the book. What is the breakfast? Well, last time, if you listen to our first Lord of the Rings episode, and if you haven't, go back and listen to it now, you'll know that we were eating Baron's Potato Bread from Recipes from the World of Tolkien, a wonderful uh, book of recipes inspired by the legend by Robert Chusley Anderson. And like any good book, it has a breakfast section, but... Like any good Tolkien-inspired cookbook, it has a second Mm. breakfast section. Mm. Let me just read a a passage here. Near the beginning of The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins finally rid, so he thinks, of a large party of dwarves who have been eating him out of house and home since the previous afternoon, is just about to relax by having a nice little second breakfast when he is interrupted by Gandalf, calling him away on his adventure. In our world, second breakfast may be little more than a snack to get us through a mid-morning energy dip. But in its heartiest form, especially at the weekend, it can take the form of brunch. I think the hobbits take it far more seriously than than brunch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, brunch is an entirely separate affair. Mm. Um, And it seemed only right to... Last episode, we were talking about how we both... Of all the sections of the book, the one that we're most drawn to is that early part where the hobbits are leaving the Shire mm. and, and there's a coziness and there's a warmth, but you know that there's danger and, and menace encroaching the borders of the coziness of the Shire and that, you know, that their danger is imminent and they're about to flee in, into further danger. Um, and clouds spreading onto the horizon of their uh, otherwise blue skies. And a great chapter that captures that sort of the, the melancholy of uh, of sort of leaving home uh, and 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 the the pull to stay for the coziness versus uh, the, the need to flee from the danger seemed to be a shortcut to mushrooms so it seemed only right that we should have farmer maggots wild mushrooms on toast <laughs> these delicious mushrooms which are rich in antioxidants as well as being one of the few food sources of essential vitamin D are perfect as part of a healthy morning meal there you go we're not just prattling on about books it's an, an educational podcast mm. so we basically had mushrooms on toast didn't we but it was a it was a, a that's all i'm doing yeah <laughs> it was a selection of various different mushrooms um we had i didn't even tell you what they were no i didn't i just thought um, they were standard <laughs> mushrooms no no buy in a, um, um your local supermarket of which i won't name i didn't forage for them i, I must admit I'm but we had to hear that we had tripping out <laughs> we had oyster mushrooms mm. from from devon uk mm. oyster mushrooms wow. and chestnut mushrooms uh and they were fried with garlic and some fresh thyme mm. uh, and rosemary and something that i'd never tried before uh lemon zest mm. which was so it grated a bit of lemon peel 
onto the mushrooms with with the garlic and the herbs. And it's really given them a kick. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely lovely. And then you squeeze the juice of the lemon, and just when when you've plated it up and you've got your mushrooms on on your toast, uh, drizzle a little bit of olive oil mm. and and just pour the remaining lemon juice, and it was absolutely gorgeous. A- any meal that I cook mushrooms in now, I put thyme in with as well. Mushrooms and thyme are just a winning combination to me, and a bit of black pepper on top. Yeah, you introduced me to the the, the mushrooms and thyme combo on our um, Hitchhiker's Guide episode mm. when we had the the full English, and I've I've never looked back. Oh, yes. Although my perfect accompaniment to mushrooms is soy sauce. Unique. So that was my, I deviated from the recipe slightly. I just felt like I needed to have a splash of soy sauce in with the mushrooms to give it that umami kick. Sadly, I don't think we can use this one in the uh, inevitable book at breakfast cookbook, which I'm sure will one day happen. Cooking the books. Cooking the books, yeah. <laughs> because uh, we have broadcast that it is from uh, an already published Tolkien cookbook. So we won't be treading on any toes that... Uh, you never know, one day, since we did uh, such a fine job of talking about the recipe, or you did there, uh, we should either become celebrity chefs or nutritionists. <laughs> mm, when we eventually publish our cookbook and it features Farmer Giles's fungi, I don't think anyone will be uh, <laughs> accusing us of plagiarism. <laughs> um, it reminds me of a, a, a funny story I once heard. I don't know if this is true. I think it is. There was um, a, a Dutch... Uh, sort of Tolkien Appreciation Society, and they invited Tolkien to their dinner to be, to be their guest of honor, and he, you know, gratefully accepted their invitation. And they they'd done um, like a sort of Middle Earth inspired menu, and they served him what they called maggot soup, thinking that they were naming it was a mushroom soup. So, oh, Tolkien, I love a nice mushroom soup, and we'll name it after the farmer in the Lord of the Rings. But of course, Tolkien was a, a bit perturbed. <laughs> by the prospect of maggot soup. As you would be. <laughs> Makes me think of the mighty boosh. Two maggot booners! <laughs> <laughs> so this is the second part of our discussion of the epic The Lord of the Rings uh, because we just... Well, uh, on the one hand, there was too much to say to fit into one podcast, but also, as we are hobbits at heart, any excuse for a second mm. breakfast. Let's Let's be honest about this. If you haven't heard the first episode, go back and listen to it and you will you will realise that we barely scratched the surface in an hour and a half <laughs> of basically just talking about how much we love The Lord of the Rings. And we sort of ended the episode by going through our favourite characters mm. and the, the, we, we asked each other to name our top three favourite characters with the caveat... Other than Gandalf, yeah, who is your favourite character? <laughs> and it just seemed it seemed too obvious, but it's Gandalf. Gandalf's mm. the best character in the Lord of the Rings. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, um, I guess uh, we're already. Well, I, I think yeah. Were we big Doctor Who fans by the time we read Lord of the Rings, or did Lord? Well, of I was first? certainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah although... I think I was a fringe Doctor Who fan mm. at that point, but. Um, Gandalf is the doctor of this book. Yeah. Um, and yet quite unique as well. Uh, there's something kind of more English and... Uh, I don't know. I'm not putting this he, he is. He's the archetypal wizard, isn't he? We, yeah. we talked last last time about um, the, the influence of Odin, specifically that image mm. of Odin the Wanderer and his wide-brimmed hat as the, as the, the inspiration for Gandalf. But there's, there's something more... You know, he's Merlin, and he, he he's every sort of wise old man in, in, in the folk tales. There's something sort of fundamental about him. 
you always feel better and reassured when he's on page. It's a little bit like the thing you were saying last night about the Family Guy thing of um, four <laughs> the four of the five, five main characters, characters are on board. The, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, but that doesn't work well in Lord of the Rings, you know. Well, no. You know, nine of the nine uh, companions uh, are on the bridge. I'm pretty sure we're going to be fine. They <laughs> <Yeah>. weren't fine. <laughs> Gandalf fell. And that bit is heartbreaking. I remember exactly where I was when I, when I read that on holiday at the time sat on the bed in the room we were in and just and just sort of the dropping the book in disbelief mm. that that Gandalf had gone and it's really interesting actually because when you think about it and I'd never thought about it in in these terms before how the fellowship of the ring it follows the hobbit almost exactly in terms of its structure you sort of Gandalf comes to the shire sends the hobbit off on an adventure and then they go to Rivendell and then when they set off from Rivendell they go into the, the the goblin caves, which is mm. effectively Moria. And then, of course, in The Hobbit, Gandalf leaves Thorin and company just on the borders of Mirkwood before mm. before they stray into fairy. But, of course, in The Hobbit, it's just, I have to leave. I have pressing business elsewhere. Whereas he leaves in a more you know, dramatic and permanent sense in The Fellowship. But, it, again, he leaves... Uh, the companions to, to to enter the realm of the perilous realm of fairy without his guidance and i'll always remember on the um uh, the dvd commentary track to the peter jackson fellowship of the ring film and billy boyd says it's at the moment that gandalf falls from the bridge he says um when gandalf's with them you you always know they're going to be okay and yeah. he says it's like when you're a little boy and your dad's with you and you, you always know everything's going to be fine and it ties into that that thing we were talking about last time about sort of the epic fantasy quest being not an allegory but a, but a perfect kind of um, I don't know the, the analogy per- well the the perfect story mm. for an adolescent on the brink of adulthood yeah. with all the perils of, of of the real world and adult life without the safety net of of of, um, of the guardian figure and or the mentor and that's you know sort of from a, from a narrative point of view. Gandalf has to leave, yeah. Um, and yet, and again, we talked about at the end of the last episode. We talked about him being revealed at the end of the Lord of the Rings as the bearer of the third Elven Ring, and his power was to kindle hope. And I, I love that. That that's you know that's what he stands for. It's so unexpected when he does fall, and I remember reading that and being absolutely devastated mm. at the time. And you know, it, it's fully convincing in, in TV and books and films. There's always the character who seems to make their end and then will put in a reappearance uh, later on. But with Gandalf, it seems so devastatingly final yeah. and it's a horrible thing to read. And, and it is final because I remember famously George R. R. Martin, who doesn't have two middle names, by the way. He just put an extra R in his name because he thought it would make him sound like a fantasy author. Like Tolkien. Well, yeah, except he very, does very, have two middle names. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah, no, it was, it was done as an homage. But uh, okay. he's famously quoted as saying that he thought that Gandalf should have stayed dead. Um, oh. Because, um, you know, George R.R. R. Martin famously will kill long-standing and beloved <laughs> characters off at the drop of a hat. And yet, I think, I don't know how flippant he was being when he said that. But I think if he means that, he's kind of not got it mm. because as we talked about last time you know gandalf is is immortal effectively he's he's, he's a maya spirit in, in incarnated in the, in this frail human body but 
that that body can die and and does die when he when he fights the Balrog and and he returns as 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 Gandalf the White but not forever mm. and Gandalf the Grey dies and Gandalf the White is different it's the same person but he lacks the sort of the whimsy uh, mm. of, of Gandalf the Grey and we we were just chatting earlier because we've been we've been walking all day sort of getting back to our teenage roots of when yeah. we would walk through woods and over hills and and just talk endlessly about the Lord of the Rings to get ourselves in, in the right head headset for this podcast and um it's interesting how when you know when the wizards were, were sent to Middle Earth to, to contest the power of Sauron, uh, you know, like Saruman sort of took took root, well, you know, set himself up in Orthanc and and shut himself off from from company and outside influence and and just delved into books and law and wanted to become clever and 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 superior whereas gandalf doesn't live anywhere he, he's nomadic <laughs> and we were talking about that kind of like th- th- that sense of wanderlust and the, the romance of it and of, of sort of you know never staying in the same place from night to night and he's, he's kind of everybody's friend and he's welcome mm. everywhere and there is that you know that, that kind of free spirit aspect to the character that's so appealing but i think it says a lot that he's he's the hero that that saruman never was because he's not interested in in mastery over anyone or he just wants to understand people and he's welcome wherever he goes i mean not among uh not in the shire all the time but you know he's everybody has a different name for him whether it's you know mithrandir or the gray pilgrim storm or storm crow yeah. <laughs> and he's kind and the, to the all the people Bowl. he meets often you yes. people in a position of power or privilege and they kind of look down the noses at people or they might hang around with people like the hobbits out of the kind of curiosity and fascination but he is kind and he shows yeah. interest in everyone he meets and he sees the the value of their soul and you know in the unexpected party at the start of Lord of the Rings, oh, he knows yeah. every single one of those hobbits, and it's really charming yeah. when they're such a, an overlooked and, and they represent the everyman. And and I love the idea that he's famed in the Shire for his yeah. fireworks, and they think of him. There's a line in the film, isn't there, about "Don't take me for a conjurer of cheap tricks." And- <laughs> And it's almost that's what the Hobbits, certainly the Hobbit children, see him as yeah. just almost like a, a children's entertainer, somebody who just does, 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 you know, flashy fireworks, and they have no idea what he's really capable of and what powers he really has and and what mission he's on. Um, but yeah, when he comes back, he's graver, and that that nomadic spirit has gone, and and the whimsy has gone, and it's it's and he knows he's here to see this thing through to the end, and when that time comes. He departs, you know. Yes. He leaves, and it's a bit like when um, when Frodo is stabbed by the Witch King on Weathertop, mm-hmm. and that wound is fatal. It's just it's, it's a, a long yes. death or the slow defeat to coin it's like a phrase. A Shakespearean death. Yeah, and and again, it, it, that's kind of bound up with the idea of leaving the Shire, and it's mm-hmm. not there and back again. He and the whole book is bound up with with, with that sense of of fading and and loss of innocence mm. and and the, the fading of the natural world and the elves leaving and so to say oh you know gandalf should have stayed dead well gandalf does die yeah. he, he <laughs> sails you know well arguably not because he sails to the undying lands at the end but he leaves middle earth he leaves our world and he leaves it to the to the race of men I've uh, never really considered that when they sail to the Grey Havens that they don't die. I always just uh, assumed that it was uh, a metaphor for death. Uh, and to hear them call the Undying Lands mm. kind of jars with my interpretation of the end uh. of the book. So. <laughs> well, yeah, that 
they're going to Valinor, basically, mm. which is fairy, true yeah. fairy in the West, into the West. But I guess you can interpret that however you want. But there is this immense sorrow to it that they're they're leaving our world. And I guess I'm thinking about death in a literal sense, but uh, they're not dying in the sense that we know it as moving from uh, a plane of existence that we can comprehend to something more incomprehensible. They're becoming part of what I often refer to in everyday life as the great consciousness and they're entering a different part of their story and a realm that is so different to ours that we can't begin to understand it and there's something quite beautiful and fascinating about that but you wouldn't want the story to be told about what exactly that is they're going mm. to i like the beautiful mystery of it it has to be mysterious it. it has to be unknowable uh, and it's a bit like you know when you delve into the sort of the greater mythology of of, of tolkien's world um because of course Elves are immortal, or not strictly immortal. And I love this concept that they they last as long as the world lasts, mm. and they're they're literally bound to the natural world. and And you can say that their their fading and their diminishing power, uh, you know, represents the, the demise of the natural. Well, yeah. not not so much represents, but you know, again, I keep saying bound up, but it is you know the, 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 these beings who are so closely connected to to the land that that they are a part of. And uh, you know, Tolkien was not a lover of of technology. He he no. never didn't like motor cars. You know, he didn't like factories, and he didn't and like it, trains. I remember no. seeing a, a documentary where I think it was his son Christopher was talking about um, seeing them build a train line, and they were looking down from the hill Whoa. where the train line was being built, and he said it felt like scars stretching yes. across the land, scars stretching across the landscape. And you can see that again, not that it's allegorical but you can see that belief of his and that that conviction of his manifest um in things like isengard mm. where you know where it's it's been the, the trees have been ripped down to create this kind of this grotesque fortress and uh, and then of course most tragically at the end with the scouring of the shire oh, when yes. the hedgerows are all ripped up and there's but yeah even even you know the mills in Tolkien's eyes, uh, 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 have gone too far mm. down down a dark path. Um, but um, but anyway, so elves but are more or less immortal, uh, whereas men, as it when, when when Tolkien says men, he means humans, the mm. race of men. Um, but they do die, and elves don't know what happens to humans when mm. they die, and and it's it's uh, it's known as Iluvatar's gift, and it's the idea that they perhaps do go somewhere greater or more beautiful, mm. but we never know. It's a mystery, and and I love that idea. What a, what a positive thing to turn it on its head to take something negative and say that death is a gift yeah. from your creator to be, I guess, to um, to be free of the burden and the the wearies of the mm. world, and um, I suppose yeah. Gandalf was a weary traveller on the road just to go back to the the, the poem and Lothlorien after after he falls. But um, oh. anyway, the, the big question is, does Gandalf the White wear a pointy hat? <laughs> I don't think he does. Going off, Well, t- to be honest, I'm saying that and I'm just thinking purely of the Peter Jackson films. Yeah, well, that, it bugged me at the mm. time. I thought, no, he should have a hat. And I'm pretty sure in the White Rider chapter, it describes him as wearing a wide-brimmed hat. Mm. But I could be wrong about that. I'm but sure what? at some point, but that's not conclusive. No, yeah. and, and, and if they did, why didn't they include that in the film? It seems like an odd thing to miss out from somebody that was the the, the pieces they did inside to did decide to include from the books. They were quite faithful to. 
So I wonder why they left the hat out, if that was the case. Well, he might look a bit KKK in a white robe <laughs> and a pointy hat, which, oh is, which would be unfortunate. Maybe yes. that's why. Oh, dear. But then I, think, I, I remember um, uh, Russell T. Davies saying that he wanted, uh, with his uh, Doctor Who, this is in 2005, the, the, the new, new Russell T. Davies Doctor Who hasn't come out yet. He said he wanted to get away from fr- frilly cuffs and long scarves. <laughs> The fool. Um, he didn't want the doctor to be a throck-coated lo- loon. Loon, yeah. Yes. Um, but and so you get Christopher Eccleston in, you know, his sort of no-nonsense black leather jacket, yeah. jeans, boots. But David Tennant was insistent on having a long coat, oh. uh, and apparently Russell kind of fought against it. Oh, really? Uh, because he said it isn't practical. He said you watch those earlier episodes of, of Doctor Who and Tom Baker's going about in his long scarf. He said you would take that off. It's impractical. Uh, and he said that that the tenth Doctor could have a long coat. But he, he made a point of writing it into the script that he took it off all the time. He's, he walks into the room and takes his coat off. And, <laughs> and and I noticed quite recently that in the Peter Jackson films, Gandalf doesn't wear the hat much. And it was almost like they thought, this isn't practical. He can't go around fighting goblins wearing a, a big pointy hat. But he's wearing it on the cast at the start when he first arrives in the Shire. And that's his first impression that yes. burned, burned in there. Yeah. It's very well realised in the film, and we probably shouldn't talk too much about the film, but the difference between Ian McKellen's portrayal of Gandalf the Grey yes. and the portrayal of Gandalf yeah, yeah. the White are vastly different, and they could and almost it, be different actors or brothers playing different that's a, characters. That's a good point, and I remember there was an interview where he said he, he enjoyed playing Gandalf the White a lot less, oh, uh, and I think he was quite pleased to go back to Gandalf the Grey for, for the Hobbit mm. films, and again, we'll, we'll discuss adaptations later on. But it's a good, yeah, It's a that's a really good point. And I think it illustrates the fact that when he comes back, he is not the same. No. Because something is lost. There's a know. kind of uh, graveness of yeah, Gandalf yeah. the White. And that humour and that glint in the eye are kind of lost. And there is something steely in his eyes instead. Oh, yeah. But he, I must say, he has some fantastic moments. Yes, he does. I mean, my, 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 my favourite, apart from the Grey Havens, my favourite moments in The Return of the King are... Gandalf's confrontation with the mouth mm. of Sauron, these we will take, uh, and Gandalf's confrontation with the Witch King. Yes. That was oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fall into the nothingness that awaits you. It's just <laughs> fantastic. He's just so completely powerful <laughs> at that stage. And yet, it's not about the power. When it all comes down to it, you know, you have this big battle, but it's it's all on Frodo. Mm. And uh, but we'll, yeah, we'll we'll come to that later on. But just to go back to what we were saying about elves and and how they're beings that are kind of tied, you know, inexorably connected to to their world, to the natural world, and how for us this book is synonymous with with a lot of places. Mm. I think, and as we mentioned in the previous episode, we've come deliberately to a part of the world where we we visited often as teenagers where we'd come and walk through woods with big sticks pretending to be (laughs) wizards (laughs) striding along on some important mission and just discussing elves and hobbits and uh, we've been out sort of retreading those paths today yeah, we've done 9.02 miles i'm disappointed i wanted to get to i 10. know so desperate for it to be 10 should we go through a walk around the block <laughs> yeah. after just so we can do 10 miles in a day if you start to hear some sort of muffled uh wind noises yeah. <laughs> it's just, the road goes ever on and we and it's embarrassing to admit but if you're actually listening to this if you're listening to 
two two guys in their thirties prattling on about the Lord of the Rings. You've probably done the same. Yeah. When we were teenagers, we were, so. we were writing our own fantasy novel mm. called. Are we going to tell them what it was called? Uh, yeah, Jedadothway Gull. I'm going to tell them where that came from. <laughs> it was a misheard song lyric from a Waterboys yeah. song called We Are Jonah. And he says, uh, from Tierra del Fuego to the Alaskan snow. Tierra del Fuego. And uh, we thought, that's great. Where are they? Yeah, that sounds Tolkien esque. Yeah. And uh, we put crazy. Um, accents and umlauts over letters because that was Tolkien with no no regard to to you know I mean Tolkien philology phonetics been, uh, horrified oh, as a scholar God. of language and yeah how uh, <laughs> how knowledgeable he was about it I think he would have been and so at 16 we co-wrote what I think I can safely say was a dreadful novel dreadful and, but charming and it but it's still I wouldn't let anyone read it but it occupies such an incredibly dear space in my heart mm. because it was kind of it was a dual thing for us i think we were trying to challenge uh, channel our love of both middle earth and the lake district mm. into into uh and each other yeah. into 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 a piece of work like to, to um <clears throat> i don't want to talk about harry potter but the idea of a horcrux like to to yeah. to, 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 to immortalize something that that you believe in in a and it was quite you know it it reminds me, um, so the last book we discussed on A Book at Breakfast was Boneland by Alan Garner. Mm. And there is something uh, about uh, the Weird Stone of Brisingerman that reminds me of, of our Jedha Dothway girl, except Garner, yes, Garner did it with, with, with yeah. much more finesse. But And I think he tried to channel the same thing that we were channeling was like the magic and the, the local landscape that you love and you adore and you grew you grew up walking around and imagining what if there were um knights sleeping under here what if there was a wizard that was guarding them and he famously dislikes the weird stone oh does uh, he yeah he says nice. i've come to regard it as, as a very bad book oh, um my word. and i love it and it and it, and it has charming. it's really charming it has a naive charm to it but tolkien didn't like it and apparently there's a was oh, tolkien read it yeah oh, there was a, there was a draft uh no a draft, there was a copy of the book with tolkien's notes on apparently about how dreadful it was oh wow okay i wonder <laughs> if that colored alan garner's impression of it i don't think he found out till much later oh, and i think he sort of i think he found it quite funny and said yeah i, I agree with him <laughs> no i think that weird stone is charming and it was actually i don't know about you but post lord of the rings uh, as a teenager i read so many terrible fantasy mm. books um i won't name the author because we're all about on a book at breakfast we're all about enthusing about books yeah. that we love and not slagging anyone off but um there's a book that basically follows the lord of the rings beat for beat and you know Every character is comparable to another character. The plot is the same. There's a magic talisman. There's a wizard-like figure who falls and then returns, you know. Um, and I was talking to a friend the other day about how laughably derivative it was. And then I stopped and thought, why on earth did I read it? Because I not only read it, I read two of the sequels in the same series. And then I realised, because I was only 15, and I realised that it was... I'd enjoyed The Lord of the Rings so much, I thought, I liked that, whatever that was, and now I want more of it. <laughs> and I went through so many dreadful and derivative fantasy books until I realised, actually, this isn't more of it. These aren't the same thing. No. Like, they're packaged the same, but they're missing some, some fundamental element. The Lord of the Rings is a book that 
is about the natural world, and through all its fantasy elements, it seems very real. Whereas a lot of those fantasy novels that sort of lived in the shadow of it and maybe kind of rode the coattails of its mm. popularity, they don't have the kind of same sense of reality and authentic authenticity that Lord of the Rings does. They seem kind of fantastical for fantastical sake sometimes. Yes, yeah. Not to say I didn't enjoy some of the escapist stuff. I remember reading some fantasy books as mm. a teenager that I absolutely loved. Um I read a series, I think, by the same author that you're talking about. I know that. And one. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And, and it was six books long, and I was so yeah. immersed in that. And I loved the escapist aspect of it. But in no way does it feel part of the same genre as Lord no, of the Rings. No, no. And um, to go back to George R. R. Martin, uh, he came up with a, a, a brilliant way of describing it. He said, the job of the fantasy author is to show you the tip of an iceberg and persuade you that there is an entire iceberg beneath mm. the surface of the water. He said... With Tolkien, he made the entire iceberg. Yes, oh, that's good. He'd been writing stories and poems uh, set in this world since about 1917. Mm. You know, there was so much in the the compost, as it were, of of, of his imagination that that when we finally get to the Lord of the Rings, you know, it it was a real place in his Mm. mind and there were real characters with real history. And we touched upon... Last time we touched upon characters who are mentioned in The Lord of the Rings but aren't really characters proper in it. You know, Beren and Luthien being a great example, or Eärendil, and even, you know, Círdan to a a, a certain degree gets a a cursory mention at the end. But um, And in other fantasy novels, they will mention... You know, they'll give, to, to, to coin a phrase, textual ruins, that that idea that you refer to previous events in the in this world and you know they're just making it up mm. they're just they're just stringing together some fancy names <laughs> and trying to persuade you that but with Tolkien it's real you know it's absolutely real to him and and I think a large part of it especially for me the immersive nature of it is that that the Im- immense description of the natural landscape yeah. Um, and and I think that again, that was something that we as teenagers tried to imitate really poorly. <laughs> I mean, I, I read an excerpt in part one of the yes. Lord of the Rings, and it re- zigzagging path. Yes, and, yeah. and it reminded me yeah. of uh, writing a chapter for our novel Jedediah Wagon, <laughs> and it was seven pages long, and it was just a description <laughs> of the walks, woods, um, and everything was very kind of epic, and everything was looked at sort of bathed in golden yeah. light, and uh, yeah, it. it it was excruciating to read, and nobody would want to read that. It would just be boring, and yet I feel nothing but affection yeah. for it. Oh, and I, I know, know exactly what I was trying to do yeah. with it. But I think I remember Terry Pratchett said, "Never, never, never use words the words thee and thou unless you are a genius." <laughs> and I think Tolkien can get away yeah. with a lot of stuff because, you know, he wasn't primarily an author. You know, he worked his whole life as, mm. as a professor and he was a philologist and he's renowned as a philologist for his work on translating Beowulf, for example, yeah. and, and papers he wrote. And, you know, he was, he was great very much. in his, you know, We talked about Douglas Adams of not necessarily being a writer, being something more. Mm. And I think not in the same way, but I think that the same is, is, is true of Tolkien. I, I don't know what he was, a, a fairyologist. <laughs> That's not a thing. At my university, I did uh, an English literature degree and we did uh, a module on Tolkienism. Of course, which, yeah. It, was it called Tolkienism? It was called Tolkienism, wow. yeah. And, um, so, yeah, you're an authority it, on that <laughs> matter. <laughs> I should be. I'm, I'm probably about as much an authority of that as I am as anything else from my English degree. <laughs> um, 
apart from maybe drinking wine. But um, <laughs> that yeah, was mandatory, it, it, wasn't it? it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was part of the syllabus. <laughs> um, but it it made it seem so credible. And when we were looking into Tolkien's history and his work in language, he seemed so different to any other author that might be called fantasy. Um, there was something wholly academic about this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and to a teenage boy, I, I guess almost a teenage boy, when I was looking at the syllabus of this degree, seeing that there was a Tolkien module, thought really exciting. But I came out the other side of it thinking about him and mm. about Lord of the Rings and his work in a completely different way. And there is a reason that he's he's held in such reverence. Yes, yeah. And um, but briefly back to uh, Alan Garner and the Weird Son of Brisingerman, I would say in hindsight, you know, that was one of the many fantasy books i was reading at the age of 15 or 16 to try and fill that kind of middle earth Mm. void and that's the i really enjoyed it and that's the one that i look back fondly on and i don't think of it as derivative i mean it only it was published in i I think 1960 so i don't think it i don't think he was inspired by Mm. lord of the rings the hobbit perhaps um but i think more so more than anything alan garner was took inspiration from his local Mm. folklore uh, and that really resonated with me. Anyone who's read anything I've written will know that I've always, you know, concentrated and been inspired by local legends and and things like that, and tr- and tried to write things again in that Tolkien esque way. Not that I, anything I've ever written is Tolkien esque, but not that good. But to write things that are where the characters are bound to their their natural landscapes and they they belong to the places. And and again, jumping the gun, but something that occurred to me uh, with the the incredible score that Howard Shaw mm. um, composed for the Peter Jackson films, is that I noticed that most of the themes, you actually, for example, you whistled the concerning Hobbit's theme at the, in our part one episode. Mm. And that's, you know, it, when we we have a theme for the Shire and there's a, there's a, there's a theme for Rivendell and there's a, a theme for Lothlorien. And when, for example, when Galadriel will appear, you hear the Lothlorien theme mm. or... You know, when when uh, Bilbo in The Hobbit or Frodo in The Lord of the Rings are, are dreaming of Bag End, you get that... Yeah. And it's like the, the people don't have theme tunes so much as the places do. Yes, but, but, so. but But the people and the places, especially in the, in the case of Galadriel and, and Lothlorien and, and Elrond and Rivendell and, and, and Bilbo and Bag End, the people and the places are almost interchangeable. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're part of each other. And... Um, Back to the area that that we're in at the moment, it might be worth mentioning. Uh, you were talking about the, the, the passage you read uh, in the previous episode about the the, the description of of their journey when when they're uh, passing uh, Woody End, I think, um, and it's almost forensic detail <laughs> and like how as as young and experienced writers we, we we tried to imitate that with with none of the real conviction or heart. <laughs> but I think one of the many reasons it works is because of the lurking threat. And there's a strange... Um, when I was younger, I would have said that the only uh, flaw with, with the area that we're in at the moment, which has nothing to do with Tolkien or Lord of the Rings, it was just where we were. It was the English countryside we were walking through whilst we were discovering it. So in our heads, it's our shire, you know. Um, but it's right near a nuclear power station. <laughs> it's this... Um, it is a designated area of outstanding beauty. You know, they're, they're, it's it's just an absolutely beautiful place, tucked away, um, and and there's it's sort of 
just to the north of Morecambe Bay. And unfortunately, there's this gorgeous panorama of the bay. And if you look north, you can see all the, the fells of the Lake District mm-hmm. and you can see out to Coniston and you can see sort of over towards sort of Ulverston Way across the bay. And, um, and yet, like right out by Hesham, just to the south, there is this big, ugly nuclear power station yeah. and it is a literal blight on the landscape these horrible blocks buildings yeah. yeah like giant breeze blocks on the horizon and for for a long time i would have said that they were that oh they spoil the view they are a blight on an otherwise perfect and beautiful landscape but i realize now that there's something so sinister about it and 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 that weird you know sort of um chernobyl-esque threat mm. that in a strange way it makes you appreciate the beautiful things that something catastrophic, catastrophic thank you, <laughs> forgot the word then, something catastrophic could happen at any second. I mean, hopefully not. But just, you know, the fact that, and we talk so much about the natural world and natural beauty, and then you have this ultimate sort of man-made, ugly horror. And and we're both, this is a tangent, but we're both big fans of David Lynch and particularly Twin Peaks. Mm. And I think what he captures so brilliantly in that is the sort of um, that duality of, of darkness and light. And you have how you have what is ostensibly the, this cozy town, this all American town with their with their, with their cherry pie and their coffee but there are these woods on the outskirts and there's some sinister presence there mm. and at the you know at the same time that there's the sort of cheerleading and and wholesome things there's there's drug dealing and, and violence and not that there's drug dealing or violence in the well there's plenty of violence in the lord of the rings but um <laughs> and 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 tolkien has that that the thing we've mentioned so often about the darkness on the borders of the shire and that that encroaching sense of dread and something we mentioned earlier was you only really appreciate and the prancing pony is a great example of that because it seems at the one hand so comforting and such a haven and yet there are these kind of sinister figures peering in at the windows and you're not sure who you can trust and we were saying like um a blazing hearth in an inn is only comforting is only truly truly comforting when the wind and rain are howling outside and it makes you, you know, it's that, that the, the darkness and the light and the fact that it makes you appreciate the comforts of home so much. So we've talked about Westmoreland. Um, another place that was dear to Tolkien, of course, was Oxford. We touched on last night. Um, and you visited Oxford a few years ago. Well, I mentioned in, in, the, in the first episode that my dad very ceremoniously bought me my first copy of the lord of the rings in oxford but it was a fleeting visit i'd never really properly been and then a few years ago we went down and we did the the, the proper tolkien pilgrimage you know, we we went to the university we went and had a pint and the eagle and child we went to northmore road saw the plaque on his house and stood there and said wow that's where Tolkien mm. wrote the Lord of the Rings. And we went to his grave, which is sort of beautifully sort of humble and understated. And of course, he's buried with his beloved wife, Edith, and the names Baron and Luthien are inscribed mm. on their headstone. And it's in- incredibly touching. Um, and on the one hand, yeah, that's a kind of must, I suppose, for any uh, Tolkien nerd. But what meant more to me and oxford is is beautiful and if you know if you're a, a fan of, i think 
the England child is is temporarily closed at the moment. Oh. It's been closed since um, since COVID, unfortunately. Oh, but I really, I really hope it reopens. But if you get the chance, go to Oxford, go and have a pint in the England. Go and sit where the Inklings sat. And if you're if you're writing a book, go with your friends and discuss it and be part <laughs> of history. Um, but what actually meant even more to me was going to a place not a million miles from where we live in Lancashire uh, called Hurst Green near Clitheroe. And there is a college there called Stonyhurst where one of Tolkien's sons was studying during the Second World War. And Tolkien would often go and stay with him. And there, I'd heard about it quite a few years ago because there is a walk around the college and its grounds called the Tolkien Trail. Mm. Uh, and, it, you know, it boasts various local connections. Like there is a, a, a river... Shireburn and there's mm. the Shireburn Arms and there's a there's a Shire Lane and I, and I, and I realized it was only when I was doing the trail that it occurred I thought yeah but that was the second world war he'd already written the hobbit and I've got my copy of the hobbit out hobbiton hobbiton bag end it's not called the shire in the hobbit it's oh, just hobbiton interesting. So it, we don't get the shire and its farthings and it's you know it, it, the, we don't get it fleshed out uh, un- until the lord of the rings and I think I think uh, Hearst Green was definitely an inspiration and an influence. And I actually um, got a little bit of insight into that. Whereas uh, a friend of mine, his parents lived on site uh, at that time uh, because his grandfather was the caretaker of the college. Uh, And one of his duties was to ferry people across the river Mm. when they needed to to be taken from one side to the other. And their other duty was that they, they had a little caretaker's cottage. And whenever a guest was visiting the college, they were expected to put them up in their spare room. Oh. So whenever Professor Tolkien came to visit his son, he would stay with my friend's <laughs> grandparents. Uh, and they said he would sit in the upstairs room and he wrote some of the Lord of the Rings there. Wow. So I have a first-hand account of that <laughs> happening like in our county. And that's really exciting when because Tolkien himself is so synonymous with Oxford uh, to, to have that that Lancashire connection was, was, was magical. And, um, apparently, um, my friend's grandfather, the ferryman, uh, took Tolkien across the river on a number of occasions. Uh, and his little boat was the inspiration for the Buckleberry ferry in the fellowship of the ring. And, uh, he even as a sort of thank you, he, he drew a little sketch of uh, my friend's granddad in his boat and they kept it in their house on the wall (laughs) until many many years later um i I don't know if she's still alive she'd be well she'd be in her 90s now if she was still alive but um at some point in her 80s a a friend was was at the house and said oh that's a that's a nice picture you've you've got on on the wall there and she said oh yeah the professor drew it for us and he said what professor (laughs) and she said professor tolkien (laughs) and he said you've got an original piece of artwork by tolkien (laughs) just on your wall we said get that get that in a safe now (laughs) i love the idea of this assuming unassuming northern couple not realizing what they've got and just taking it in their strides And my friend, in a, in a typically understated way, just just mentioned one day, said a long time ago, says, "Oh, you know, my granddad was a hobbit, don't you?" <laughs> what do you mean, your granddad was a hobbit? <laughs> no, he was. His granddad was a hobbit. Um, and so I had to go and and do the Tolkien Trail and go and have a pint in the Shireburn Arms, um, and it was wonderful. And and of course, you want to go and see something 
I've just remembered they have uh, weddings there actually in the field that they have the weddings in they call it Hobbit Hill so they're obviously they're cashing in on their Tolkien connection (laughs) and why not good for them because it is a gorgeous part of the county and it is very very shire like with its little fields and and rolling gentle hills and and streams and rivers it's and green woods it's just it's it's so gentle and very very English it's just beautiful I did a walk around there with my mum when I was a teenager I don't have much more to say about it than that, but it's very beautiful and I've got nice memories of it. Thank you for your contribution. <laughs> but I, I suppose on some level I was wanting to go and point at something and say, ah, yes, that's clearly the party tree. Or, you know, that's clearly... Well, I could say that's clearly the Buckleberry Ferry. Or you, you know what I mean. That man uh, is Tom Bombadil. <laughs> no two ways about it. Um, but I realised I would say something more valuable than that. And it was that everywhere is Middle Earth. Mm. And there's, there's a there's a lovely passage at the start of The Hobbit. I know we're talking about The Lord of the Rings, but you can't really talk about one without the other. Um, about uh, how hobbits are, are rarely seen these days because, you know, they, they're they good at hiding and they'll, they'll, they'll scuttle out of the way when, when the big folk come thundering along, making a noise like an elephant. I don't know the exact mm. quote. Um and he says, you know, that they're rare in, in the world these days, but but the story of The Hobbit takes place in a time when there was less noise and more green, oh. and I think that's gorgeous. Um, but I think Tolkien was one of those people who was able to to see the magic in places and and to focus on the green and drown out the noise. And I think he just had such a, a unique way of looking at the world that everywhere, Lancashire, Oxfordshire... You know, and uh, Sarehall Mill, you know, on the outskirts of, of Birmingham where, where he grew up, you know, Middle Earth, especially Middle Earth, but especially the Shire. It's Tolkien's love for the English countryside and the natural world and, and for trees. We haven't really talked about trees <laughs> or tree beard, you know, but um, oh, I don't know if you can hear this, but it's just started raining where we are oh. talking of the natural world. We're staying in a wood cabin, so it sounds particularly beautiful on the roof. We need to get a roaring fire going yeah. so we can appreciate the warmth. <laughs> but i tell you what we will do. We'll put the kettle on ah, great and we'll plan. be right back. So we're uh, back from our tea break. and We were just reflecting that we've talked a lot about the characters and places in the book. But we haven't actually really talked about the ring or the Lord of the Rings uh, yet. So maybe we should touch on yeah, that. Maybe we should Especially, I mean, it's the title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and it, what I find really interesting about Sauron is that he's not really in it. He's this mm. presence and this constant terrifying presence. And of, and of course, like, you know, he is bound to the ring um, and the idea that his evil is contained within it and it's this ultimate sort of corrupting thing it's such a fantastic plot device and and i've i've read i think there's even in one of tolkien's own letters he he talks about the fact that frodo failed his quest and i know some people see it that way but wow. i just you know because obviously when because Gollum essentially destroys yeah, him, right? Um, well, spoilers. <laughs> well, more than that, that 
when it comes to the moment to cast the ring into the fire, he can't do it. Mm. That fantastic no, I am the Lord of the Rings. So when you say, <laughs> who, you know, maybe it's Frodo that we're talking about. He's the titular Lord of the Rings. Um, and I think on the one hand, but surely nobody could bear that burden. And Frodo's task, as I see it, was not actually to cast the ring into the fire, but to carry it that way, to mm. bear it all that way. And of course he fell at the end because it was just, it was impossible. And everybody, and I, I tell you what's, what's interesting, like as, as I've got older, I've had more sympathy on rereads for Boromir and even Gollum mm. because I, I thought of them as kind of bad people or evil or, and certainly they were, they were more easily corrupted than somebody like Bilbo and certainly Aragorn, um, but they're not evil people. I've rather a loss of sympathy for Gollum. I think he's yeah, quite a pathetic he's such character. A tragic there, character. There is a lot of tragedy there. Yeah. And you almost feel happy for him at the end yeah. when he's reunited with his precious. And and it's really interesting. There is a trait in Tolkien that the evil characters, they're not actually defeated in the sense of being, you know, stabbed or overcome. They, they are their own undoing. Mm. Um, like even Saruman at the end, he's he's freed. He had he can be whatever he wants. He can go, you know, and and that 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 scene where Gandalf encounters him on the road as a, as, a, as a ragged, disheveled man, and uh, you know he he's not been killed. He's not you know, uh, but he chooses evil, and it's his treatment of Grima that's his ultimate undoing. Yeah. And similarly with 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 Gollum, you know, Bilbo's pity and then Frodo's pity spares his life and at the end he he takes his own life it, it, his his lust for the ring just consumes him and and destroys him and i would say in terms of that idea of you know it's a pity bilbo didn't stab that vile creature when he had the chance you know um that's the that's frodo's real battle mm. i would say that's his real quest there's, there's bearing the ring but to go all that way with this wretched loathsome creature but to pity him and to see I was about to say the humanity in him. He's not human, but you, you know what I mean. But to, to yeah, to, to pity him and realize that he's not fundamentally evil. He's just corrupted, and I could be, I could become that, and I am on my way to becoming that. And and you're talking as Throdo now, not as yourself. Is that yeah, right? okay. <laughs> the lines blur. <laughs> I'm yeah. slightly worrying about uh, sharing this cabin <laughs> with you tonight. Well, it is my birthday. <laughs> I want it. It's very true. <laughs> <laughs> but um. Yeah, and his his pity he 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 spares Gollum's life uh, on on more than one occasion, mm. and he and he saves he saves him from Faramir or Faramir's men, uh, and then that's the ultimate test at the end. If if it wasn't for Gollum at the end, the whole quest would have yes. been lost. Yeah, but again, I really don't see that 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 Frodo failed because I think that again back to what we talked about in the first episode that idea that the events of this tale take place in a fallen world and and, and the ring kind of embodies that that corruption um because again without wanting to get too nerdy even if you've not read any of the other sort of legendarium stuff you will have doubtless heard of of morgoth the the, the first dark lord and it was mentioned in the in the baron and luthien story that strider tells in um is it a knife in the dark? I think we we quoted it last mm. episode. Uh, uh, you know, Morgoth to whom Sauron was was lieutenant, um, 
and the the balrog i think is referred to as a balrog of morgoth this is you know this 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 creature of of ancient evil and morgoth is no longer he's been cast out of the world and he's in the void now he can never come back into this world and yet his evil remains and sort of in in some ways like sauron is almost like morgoth's ring because his his will is still being carried out or rather as as tolkien speculated that um middle earth is is morgoth's ring because he he in that sort of luciferian fallen sense he corrupted everything and and you know that there will always be evil and darkness and yeah <laughs> it's pretty grim sorry what was the question <laughs> uh well we were talking about the ring oh, and, uh, yeah. the lord of the rings so i think you've uh you've addressed that quite well um but just we're it, talking about Sauron being a non-presence within. The oh my! Well. Yeah, but, but when a kind of constant yeah, ever presence at the, the same threat. time. Now again, not to go into adaptations, and I think this is up for debate. I never, I always, my interpretation of the Eye of Sauron, hmm. uh, when I when I read the book, like that they were kind of being metaphorical. I didn't think of a literal eye. Um, and it's a bit like when they, you know, his arm has indeed grown long uh, on the Ringo South. You know that I don't think they're they're talking about the arm of Sauron, but <laughs> but who knows? But then there, you know, the orc graffiti on 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 on, on the the statue, yes, uh, with, with with the the red eye. So, but I, I always took that as a concept for his almost, um, you know, his, his his spies and his servants are everywhere, and his presence is felt everywhere because of because of his lingering evil. But I love the fact that we don't we don't really know sort of what Sauron is or what he looks no. like. We know from the appendices that he was once fair to look upon, but now he's monstrous. Um, and one of my favorite moments, as I've said, my favorite moments in Return of the King are all Gandalf being amazing. Um, <laughs> but but. One of my favourite moments in Return of the King, and what I think one of the most chilling moments in the entire Lord of the Rings, is when Pippin looks into the Palantir, and then Sauron, the Dark Lord, who has just been this kind of frightening presence, he's been a whispered name throughout the entire journey, and then we see him, and it is terrifying. I took the ball and looked at it, stammered Pippin. I saw things that frightened me, and I wanted to go away, but I, I couldn't. And then he came and questioned me, and he looked at me, and, and that's all I remember. That won't do, said Gandalf sternly. What did you see, and what did you say? Pippin shut his eyes and shivered, but said nothing. They all stared at him in silence, except Merry, who turned away. But Gandalf's face was still hard. Speak, he said. In a low, hesitating voice, Pippin began again, and slowly his words grew clearer and stronger. I saw a, a dark sky and tall battlements, he said, and tiny stars. It seemed very far away and long ago, yet hard and clear. Then the stars went in and, and out. They, they were cut off by things with wings, very big, I think, really. B but in the glass they looked like bats wheeling round the tower. I thought there were nine of them. One began to fly straight towards me, getting bigger and bigger. It had a horrible... No, 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 I, I can't say. 
I tried to get away because I thought it would fly out, but when it occurred that all the globe, it disappeared. Then he came. He did not speak so that I could hear words. He just looked, and I understood. <sighs> Beautifully read, by the way. But oh, that, thank you. When I read that as a teenager, that terrified me. Yes, it's me so too. dark, it's so ominous. And, like, and then he came. And like, oh, this presence. And my God, absolutely terrifying. And it's funny because, like, as you know, I, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, I like dark, spooky, weird uh, stuff. And Really? And, and, you know, the villains in things are cool, you know, like Darth Vader's cool, yeah. you know what I mean? But... He's got a leather cape and a fancy <laughs> helmet. <laughs> and he's got one of them glow sticks. Yeah. Um, but there's... The, the villains in The Lord of the Rings are just so appalling. Mm. I mean, they're great characters, like... And and I think that's why when we discussed our favourite characters in the last episode, I, I didn't say Saruman because even though he is he is really cool in in a way, and and I like you know I especially love the chapter the voice of Saruman when he's trying to charm everyone, and he is a sort of beguiling and interesting character, and I will forever picture him as Christopher Lee. You know, that's that's <laughs> yes. you know, he can't some things you can't undo. Sometimes um, somebody just nails something. Yep. And it's impossible to see anybody else in that <laughs> mind. Um, and yet, as much as I love Christopher Lee and and the idea of this this sinister wizard, what Saruman represents, you know, his wanton destruction of the natural world, and and it's it, it, it it's so ugly. Mm. And it's and, and Sauron as an antagonist, he's not cool in the way that some villains are there's nothing attractive about him he is grotesque and i don't mean just like physically i mean like what he stands for you know you know the absolute destruction of of beauty and and furthering you know spreading the rot that morgoth set in it's just yeah i find him so interesting as a character and and i love the fact that he's rarely glimpsed until you get that one terrifying moment Mm. but um but back to the ring uh, and in terms of, you know, uh, people, how everybody was susceptible to it. You can't help but wonder what would have happened if Sam had carried it to the end. Yes. Because like Bilbo, he gives it up freely. He, admittedly, he doesn't have it for very long. Mm. But Sam takes the ring at one point. He has to. And then he gives it back. Yes. And... um I mentioned, uh, I think in the last episode, that there was a point in the two towers where I hurled my book at the wall ah, in yes. sheer dismay. Uh, and it's uh, after the confrontation uh, with with Shelob and the choices of Master Samwise where oh, I was convinced, ab- utterly convinced that Frodo was dead. And you get, Mr. Frodo, he called. Don't leave me here alone. It's your Sam calling. Don't go where I can't follow. Wake up, Mr. Frodo. Oh, wake up, Frodo. Me dear, wake up. The anger surged over him, and he ran about his master's body in a rage, stabbing the air and smiting the stones and shouting challenges. Presently he came back, and bending, looked at Frodo's face, pale beneath him in the dust. And suddenly he saw... He was in the picture that was revealed to him in the mirror of Galadriel and Lorien. Frodo, with a pale face, lying fast asleep under a dark, great cliff. Or fast asleep, he had looked then. He's dead, he said. Not asleep, dead! 
And as he said it, as he said it, the words had set the venom to its work again. It seemed to him that the hue of the face grew livid green. And then black despair came down on him, and Sam bowed to the ground and drew his grey hood over his head. And night came into his heart, and he knew no more. Is that the end of The Two Towers? No, because it actually ends... It's worse than that, because (laughs) (laughs) he realises he has to flee, and then, uh, you know, is it Gorbag and Shagrat take the body? Of course. Yeah, and then... It's only when they've taken him that Sam realizes that you know. Uh, is it um, Shagrat says she doesn't eat dead meat nor suck cold blood. This fellow isn't dead. <laughs> Sam reeled, clutching at the stone. He felt as if the whole dark world was turning upside down. So great was the shock, he almost swooned. But even as he fought to keep a hold of his senses, deep inside him, he was aware of the comment: "You fool, he isn't dead." <sighs> <laughs> don't trust your head Samwise it's not the best part of you and then you get that we talked about how the ending of the fellowship was was full of hope um, but then with the two towers there's very little hope. Yeah, very Sam yelled supply. and brandished Sting but his little voice was drowned in the tumult no one heeded him the great doors slammed to boom the bars of iron fell into place inside. Clang! The gate was shut. Sam hurled himself against the bolted brazen plates and fell senseless to the ground. He was out in the darkness. Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy. It's just like from the hope of we may see this again to like just pacing the road going, no, no! <laughs> You're sort of like, I must know what happens next. But that moment when... When he, it says there, he's he's not asleep, you fool, he's dead. It's, yes. Frodo is dead. And it's so cleverly written because it's from Sam's point of view. It's not really misdirection. He genuinely believes that. And, and Frodo's paralyzed and in, in a state of almost living death. So of course, like Sam would believe that. And it wasn't just a character that I like has died in a book. And I loved Frodo dearly. But I think, you know, Gandalf was my favorite. He'd already died once. <laughs> um, and I loved Sam too, but it, it, it was... It what you know I I did dearly love Frodo, but it was it was much more than just grieving the character. It was that sense of trudging through the the bleak despair of of of, of the the dead marshes and the Black Gate and uh, oh and and all the stuff with Faramir and the Forbidden Pool and 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 they're so weary by this stage and they've gone through so much and we've gone through it with them as the yeah. reader, and you really feel like you're on this quest. And then it was all for nothing. And there was a, a, a real sort of palpable sense of despair for me. Like, I've come all this way and it was all for nothing and Frodo's <laughs> dead. And I just, I was sat on my bed in my bedroom at, at, at home at my mum's house when I was reading it. I was 15, 14, 15 years old. And I sound so dramatic. No one was watching me. I had this book and I, I fell from the bed. I sank to my knees in tears <laughs> and just wailed. And I hurled the book at the room and it almost, I held the book at the wall and it almost tore in two. And I was just like, I was just completely distraught, bereft. Like Frodo can't be dead. And then, and then Sam decides to take the ring and he's like, what, what else can I do? And it, I remember just sort of, I, I could only read like a paragraph at a time because I'd, I'd, I'd read it and then I'd put it down and pace and pace and sort of hyperventilate. Like, oh my God, Sam's going to take the ring. Oh, there's just too much to take in. And then Frodo's not dead, but he's been taken by the orcs. I was like, oh my God, what a moment. 
And has ever <gasps> has any book ever produced such a visceral reaction from you as that? No, I've never thrown anything at a wall since. <laughs> um, I mean, like the book thief and time traveler's wife made me cry mm. lots and lots and lots. Yeah. And Terry Pratchett uh, has made me cry quite a lot actually. Um, but no, I've never thrown a book at a wall. <laughs> I don't think. Um, Wait until you read some of those I bought you for your birthday. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, the Beren and Luthien chapter in the Silmarillion really, really affected me. But again, my copy is intact. Yeah, I don't... Th- I've, yeah, I've had some I've had some reactions, some shocks, but no. No, that was, that was the most <laughs> affected I have ever been by words on a page. Yeah, and it's more so than, than Gandalf in Moria, even though that was more heartbreaking. But at the same time, you know... Well, the quest goes on, but at, but at that point we were so far into the adventure, I just couldn't, I couldn't bear it. The thing that probably got the most visceral reaction from me in books, and it's something I don't think we're going to cover in these podcasts, so I'm just going to give it a brief nod, is the the end of the original Philip Pullman, his Dark Materials, oh. uh, when Will and Lyra get separated, and I was absolutely devastated. Oh, oh you the end of the trilogy, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I found it's one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever read. And it's similar. I think they've been through a a similar kind of tumultuous journey and they've been into the land of the dead. And to have been all through all this and kind of uh, discovered love for each other and lost their innocence and then have that taken away absolutely destroyed me. And I've got a diary entry I wrote after finishing it and I occasionally look at it and think, you know, wow, in one respect, you know, you're 20 years old and having this amazing kind of... Mm over the top reaction to something but at the same time i still kind of i get that feeling and that that's one of the things that has most kind of touched me as if it is like actual figures in my own life i had a, a similar reaction but i'm not going to say what because it was actually to the ending and specifically the relationship between two characters in the book that we will be covering next ah, but right, i'm not going to okay. say what it is yet oh interesting yeah but again didn't throw it at the wall <laughs> <laughs> So, we are well, an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> when are we going to get to this? <laughs> and um, I still feel like we've not scratched the surface. There's so I, I much collectively, we've done about uh, two hours and forty minutes <laughs> on this. So that covers but, concerning uh, hobbits. Hey, I, there's, I guess there's could... a, there's a there's a, a podcast called the Prancing Pony Podcast. Ah, yes. uh, that's been going for yeah. about seven years now and they're, they're only uh, up to the, the end of two towers i think <laughs> these things take time <laughs> they do but i, I guess you're gonna have to consider this a, a short introduction yeah it's a, a long we, short introduction. A, a very long short introduction yeah but uh we will move on as we always do at this point to talk about adaptations and there are many there are many book. so <laughs> whether we'll be here for another hour and a half i don't know yeah. but um there's been quite a few Let's start with the radio series first of all. Now I've not heard the radio series, haven't you? Snippets, but you have heard you, you have heard it, haven't you? I've heard Just, bits. And yeah, bits. I, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised you haven't heard it all the way through because mm. I, I, I'm only because. As a teenager, I'm surprised I didn't just come round and just play them to you disc by disc. I think they actually repeated them on Radio 4 oh, around wow. the time the films came out. And right. I dipped into them. Uh, but I don't think I've ever actually heard it all the way through. Well, I'm so, sure you remember. And if anyone listening hasn't heard the incredible... I think Brian Sibley was the director. Um, uh, a f- sort of full cast audio dramatisation of The Lord of the Rings for, for the BBC. Um, it stars Ian Holm 
as Frodo mm. uh, as Frodo Baggins, <laughs> uh, making him. You know, he holds the distinction in my mind of being the best Frodo and the best Bilbo oh. <laughs> in different mediums. Obviously, sorry, Elijah. Yeah, I love you, and, Elijah. Uh, Martin. I love Martin Freeman too, but <laughs> Ian Holm. He just, yeah. he's just fantastic. Um, and who? I can't remember the actor's name, but it's really interesting because, and we'll get to this later, but the the voice actor who portrays Gollum in the radio play is the same Gollum as in the cartoon. Oh, right. I yeah, didn't know the, that. The, the Baxter cartoon, oh. yeah. Um, and who else? Is it? Michael Hordern as Gandalf, mm. who I remember reading uh, an interview with him in a, in like a Tolkien fanzine from oh, sometime in the 80s, I guess, as sort of just an old photocopied copy. And they were asking about his memories uh, of, 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 you know, of playing Gandalf. And he's so dismissive. Oh. And he's, he's basically says, oh, I don't remember. He said, now, if I were playing uh, Brothero, for example, uh, ooh, <laughs> that would be very important. And I just thought, no, oh, you pompous. And it made me, it made me love Ian McKellen yeah. so much more. And I didn't think he that was, was, always think that was possible. Gandalf, yeah. And- Ian McKellen has become Gandalf yeah. in much the same way that Tom Baker became the Doctor. I remember, um, again, we'll, we'll get there, we'll get there, but um, I was lucky enough to see Ian McKellen performing his one-man show that he toured for his 80th birthday, and he played at the Grand in Blackpool, like Ian McKellen at my <laughs> local theatre, and, and you know, the, the stage was dark, there was silence, and then suddenly out of nowhere, you just got the Bridge of Khazad-dûm theme <laughs> blaring from the speakers, and he came out holding a copy not just a copy of the Lord of the Rings. He was holding that Gandalf in the Rain oh. paperback, the first, my my first ever copy of Lord of the Rings, and he and he recited basically the whole end of the Bridge of Khazad-dûm wow. chapter, um, and it was just electric, absolutely amazing. And he he had Glamdring, and he had the hat, and he was just you know he loves it, and he loves the fans, and he he's just so gracious. And anyway, we're talking about the radio play, despite the fact that uh, <laughs> Michael Hordon was was a bit um, a bit sniffy about playing a silly wizard in a children's but He plays it wonderfully. Right. He's a very, okay. very good Gandalf. He doesn't have any of the kind of... <sighs> Ian McKellen brought another side to it. Mm. Uh, you know, a real kind of lightness and, and, and a sense of whimsy underpinning what is actually ostensibly quite a serious and grave and stern character. Um, Michael Hordon was a bit more one note. I, I, I'm not even sure if I've got his name right, but he was very good. And I think as an undertaking... What an undertaking to to turn a thousand page novel into a, I mean, how many? It's probably about eight hours long, but still to to tell that story on radio, and I think it's absolutely spectacular. Um, I especially love the Gimli in the in the radio adaptation, and I, and I think those early chapters, it's it's very bumbling and very English, and you know they um they have scenes that are omitted in other adaptations, like they actually have mushrooms with Farmer Maggot and. And uh, uh, and all the stuff about his his dogs and and Frodo uh, having been beaten by him, uh, and I love that. that. That's also brilliantly warm and well realized. And and Sam's reticence to to trust the farmer who beat his master, but and Sam, it must be mentioned again. Sorry to Sean Astin, but my favorite Sam by far. And if you've heard it, you might not identify the voice actor portraying Sam because he sounds so different to oh. his his normal voice. It's Bill Nye. Oh right, and he is fantastic. Wow, you know, really believable, full of emotion and heart. And 
So what I, year was this? I think it was 1980. Right. Okay. I think he was, you know, relatively unknown mm. then. Um, but what a job he does. Wow. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I'm not wild on Saruman, I must say. He sounds a bit like Christopher Biggins, which is fine. <laughs> the wrong Christopher. <laughs> Love Christopher Biggins, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I don't hear the voice of Saruman being that affable. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Saruman didn't work for me. But I mean, it just it, it's a gorgeous and, they, you know, so many songs in it. It's so faithful to the book. I mean, obviously, there are certain things that they just didn't have time to do mm. or couldn't. You know, they, you know, there's no Tom Bombadil and other things are omitted. Uh, I, Tom out. And I don't know, like, towards the end, when you get to Return of the King, I'm not sure if they ran out of time and or money but um or maybe it's just because the sheer scope of all the battles in return of the king you can't put that on on radio really and so they kind of resort to song and it almost becomes slightly like almost like something out of black adder like and then legolas who shot the bow and killed all the orcs and he, i mean what, what's happened <laughs> this was quite grounded and wonderful and and and, and very relatable and now there are um a progressive rock opera yeah <laughs> too many songs and i, I don't when I say songs, I mean songs they've made up to tell the story yeah. and not Tolkien songs. Uh, any of Tolkien's songs and poems they put in are, are fantastic. Obviously, they would be. And um, I love, I don't know the actors' names, but Merry and Pippin are, are really, really lovable in this adaptation too. So what, you haven't heard the whole thing, but what were your general impressions of it? Um, it's filed in a little nostalgic place of my brain <laughs> of listening to an old stereo system with a CD player oh, and cassette yeah. and radio and listening to certain documentaries on Radio Thor and Radio 2. But apart from a little glow of nostalgia and I think about my old bedroom and I think about that experience of getting into Lord of the Rings, I don't really have any constructive thoughts about uh, well, the radio I've, version of this. I, I've put them all, all nine discs um, I ripped them and I've put them on a hard drive for you. So. Oh, okay, thank you. That's my gift yes. to you. Well, maybe we'll return to this. <laughs> yeah. Um, now I have seen the cartoon, um, which, in some ways, I think it was easy to laugh at when we were younger. But we actually, I think it's it quite probably cruelly. quite good uh, yeah. in some respects, and I think they get certain aspects of it, but. Um, you do kind of get the feeling that the the animators were perhaps smoking something uh, <laughs> when they were doing that because some of it's quite uh, off the wall and they make some interesting choices about the portrayals of mm. uh, certain characters. Oh, uh, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you guess who that and was. Very Camp Sam with his uh, strange lumbering walk <laughs> and a very abrupt Gandalf. You know, Frodo sounds like what was the English guy in the monkeys called? Davy. Oh, Davy Jones. Davy Jones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Gandalf. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he kind of does, doesn't he? And yeah, I think it was probably quite a big influence on Peter Jackson. Oh, massively. In yeah. I um in that interminably long summer, uh, <laughs> while I was waiting for the Fellowship of the Ring VHS to come out. I'd pre-ordered it. Oh, I can't believe it came uh, out on VHS. I think it originally. came out in July. Mm. And it was just felt like I'd been waiting my entire life. Um, because these days, you know, things are on at the cinema. And then they're pretty much streaming the week after. <laughs> yeah. But back in the day, you'd have to wait sometimes a year 
it would yeah, it they, would, they, would, out. they would stop screening it in the cinema and if you would have to wait at least six months before the home video release mm. and i'd pre-ordered it like as soon as the order went up and it came with this gorgeous book called the visual dictionary oh, do you remember, remember that? Sort of, something yeah. along those lines um and i remember i was just desperate i was just desperate to see that film uh and i was in a sort of that's entertainment type shop uh, one day yes. in London. We were on holiday and um and I saw a copy of uh, Ralph is it Baxi or Bashki? I can't remember, sorry. I saw a copy of the cartoon and 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 the the cover made it look so cool. <laughs> Gorgeous art sort of slightly better artwork than is actually in the in the show. But not you know, yeah, the artwork is. is very good. Yeah. But it's like Gandalf holding a massive sword. It's I mean I guess it's glamdring. Yeah. And a tiny hobbit <laughs> in front of him, um, and I bought it thinking, well, this 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 can be my Fellowship of the Ring methadone. I say Fellowship; <laughs> it's actually technically Fellowship in Half of the Two Towers. Yes, because um, that's that's one thing we should mention. If you haven't seen the cartoon, curiously, it just ends halfway through. <laughs> yeah, and I think there was a plan to make a second part. There in was the last of three books, but I, did did they lose interest? Did they smoke too much? I think it. It cost a lot of money to uh, make, okay. and it didn't make the kind of returns that the studio wanted. So um, they wanted to release it as the Lord of the Rings Part One, mm. but then the studio said, "Oh no, no, that won't. People won't be interested in that. Just just call it the Lord of the Rings, and then we'll do <laughs> the Return of the King as the sequel." Um, but it, it it didn't happen. But bizarrely, you know, uh, Rankin Bass. No. Oh. Um, you know, Mr. Hankey in South Park. Oh, yes. Yeah. The, the, those cartoons are a parody of like sort of the quite wholesome American cartoons. Okay. The Rankin Bass was the company who made them. And they made a Hobbit cartoon. Oh. And I've never actually seen it. I've never managed to get a copy of it. And I think it's quite beloved, actually, mm. in, in its way. And they obviously saw the gap in the market um, for finishing the cartoon version of The Lord of the Rings. Oh, right. So sometime... I, I, in the late 70s early 80s i'm not entirely sure they released uh, the return of the king really? so it gets really weird canonicity wise oh. because it's not related it's not a sequel <laughs> to the the lord of the rings cartoon and i'm but guessing it, it's not the same voice actor no, or it's the same animation different. style it's a sequel to the hobbit <laughs> and you'd be surprised how well it works because they've done the hobbit where bilbo goes on this adventure uh, and finds a magic ring, and Bilbo's in it, and Gandalf's in it, and then there's a kind of introduction that kind of very, very, very quickly explains. Turns out that Bilbo's ring was the one ring of the Dark Lord Sauron, so his nephew Frodo has gone on a quest to destroy it. Meanwhile, Gandalf, and we don't need to worry about the fact that he died and was resurrected, just Gandalf is is leading <laughs> the, the, the forces of good in a fight against the goblins, and that's where oh. it begins. And, you know, it kind of works. <laughs> Have and you got it? No, I watched it on YouTube, I think. Oh, right. I was just still up there. It's got songs in it as well. Oh. The, the goblins have a song where the orcs are <laughs> where there's a whip, there's a way. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is, it's quite bad. It's quite cheesy, but it's really lovably cheesy. Oh, but anyway, like back, to see it. back to the Lord of the Rings animated film. Um, yeah, I, when I watched it as a teenager, I thought, oh, this is quite poor. Um but there was something endearing about it, and I I like the fact that it's sort of mixed with um, live action in the sense mm. that some of it's you know it's against uh, a green screen. Yeah. I suppose they've got the, the orcs. I think are portrayed by actual people, and there's a kind of a sort of 
early digital effects on them to give them sort of creepy eyes and and it's almost done like shadow puppetry and like the the prologue where it shows you know the the, the last alliance between men and elves and the ring being cut from Sauron's hand it's all done in silhouette with live action well with live action and it's quite effective it reminds me of the um the original Paddington Bear series from the 70s I never uh, watched based it on the books um and obviously, subject matter-wise, it's about as different as different can be. <laughs> but they um, they draw all the characters and all the backdrops. They're all drawings like an animation. Mm. But Paddington is a real bear. Oh, wow. Um, playing to these uh, drawings. And there's something really effective about it. Yeah. I've never seen anything else quite like that. But it's it's a really unique style. And it's kind of somehow made it become a design classic. And yeah, over the years, every time I revisit the cartoon, I like it even more. Mm. And I'm kind of amazed... You know, as I get older, I'm amazed by what an, an impressive feat it was to tell that, you know, it, it must have been so hard to, to adapt it mm. to begin with and then to, to put things on the screen. And not, they didn't get everything right. And again, I'm afraid I don't really care for the Saruman or bizarrely, Aruman, as he seems to be called. <laughs> yes. I, there, there are some schools of thought that characters in things shouldn't share, shouldn't have name is beginning with the same letters or it's confusing for for the reader or viewer or whatever so perhaps that was why and even though he's saruman of many colors in the book and that's kind of explained it doesn't really explain when we first meet him he's wearing a red robe (laughs) even before he's announced himself as saruman of many colors so he's this guy with a red robe white hair white beard he kind of looks like an evil santa and he's got this ridiculously high-pitched voice like i am saruman of many colors (laughs) you know (laughs) i mean even though Christopher Lee was basically the the, the best Saruman we, we could have ever hoped yeah. for. I mean, at that stage, anything would have been an improvement for me <laughs> over the audio version and the uh, and the cartoon version. But maybe maybe I'm being harsh there. Um, no, but I and then what I realized was, you know, in terms of the mammoth undertaking of sort of carving up the book and the story and turning it into a, a visual medium, how much of a debt the Jackson films mm. owe to that cartoon just for the for the way um and even you know we say it ends halfway through return of the king jackson sorry halfway through the two, two towers. towers jackson's two towers ends at the same point yeah. they both end at the, at the end of helm's deep with gandalf giving a rousing speech although the speech at the end of the cartoon one isn't quite rousing <laughs> enough it's like yep we've won the war now and he throws the sword <laughs> into the air and he's, uh, but what about frodo and the ring nope done um <laughs> But I think it was a very, very noble attempt. I think um, I have to mention uh, certain cast members. Um, uh, Anthony Daniels, C-3PO oh, fame, was Legolas. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. Not my favourite Legolas, but he, he did a, a, an all right job. Um, John Hurt, yes. as as far for my money, the ultimate Aragorn. Mm. He looks strange. Um, they've almost given him a sort of native um, american look i'm not sure that was deliberate or not um but i think in some ways it's a truer portrayal of the book aragorn than Mm. than other aragorns i've seen um and i yeah i really like i really like what they what they did with him and especially how john hurt voiced him because john hurt you you can't go wrong with john hurt Mm. and annette crosby voices galadriel which i found really cool because she is also the voice of Granny Weatherwax in uh, the um, animated version of Terry Pratchett's oh, I can imagine that. Weird Sisters. Oh, yeah, and she's so good in both. So that was, yeah, she's like fantasy royalty. 
I'm trying to think who else is in it that I know of, but and obviously the Gollum voice actor um is the same guy who well later went on to voice Gollum for the BBC radio series. And I must say his portrayal of Gollum, I mean Andy Circus, he's kind of owned it now. He's Gollum. Uh and yet the, both the cartoon and the audio adaptation interpretation of Gollum were closer to how I heard him in the book kind of almost kind of frog like oh yeah my precious Gollum, Gollum. and then Andy Serkis brings that kind of coughing up a cat coughing up a hairball kind of grotesquerie and it's just a different kind of wretchedness but um and I don't think one is necessarily better than the other but um you know, in terms of just the sheer sound, but I, I thought it was a really good interpretation. Again, I don't know the actor's name from the from the cartoon, but yeah, I would say a brave effort and mm. really fun to watch. Um, and I think actually, if you look at it in the context of when it was made, quite pioneering, you know, in mm. terms of how they adapted the story, but also the visual techniques they used. And I think a bit of a, a bit of an underrated gem, yes, I would say. I, I would agree. And then um, we come to the audiobooks. You've kind of already touched oh, on this yeah. a little bit uh, with Andy Serkis. Um, so I haven't listened to the audiobook version. Um, I played you a bit, though, didn't I? Yeah, I've heard yeah. little bits. Um, and I've also heard bits of the Andy Serkis one. Um, and he did his wonderful reading of The Hobbit as well oh, during lockdown. Which the Hobbit-a-thon. A, a really yeah, uh, comforting I sponsored, thing. That was and, such a good day. <laughs> I, I kind of dropped in and out yeah. throughout the day. I, I watched a bit, then I went for a long walk, and well, I came I, back and he was still doing it. Yeah, and, well, I also and went, I was making dinner and he was still yeah, doing it. And I also great. went for a long walk that day, oh. um, but I had lots of data left. So I just put my phone in my pocket, put my headphones on, and I walked for hours. I wasn't watching, obviously, but I listened. I I, I stayed at home and watched up till about Riddles in the Dark Mm. on the TV. Then I went out for a big walk and listened, I think, all the way up to um, pretty much uh, The Gathering of the Clouds, I think. And then Mm. I I made my tea and settled back down for for the very end. It was a wonderful day. day, yeah. And of course, it was it was just inevitable, wasn't it? Well, you've done the Hobbit. What about Lord of the Rings? And I could, but I still, you know, it's such a it's such a huge thing to embark on. Yeah. You know, I I know he's a wonderful performer and voice voice artist generally. And talking of Discworld, actually, I've just bought his Small Gods audiobook. I'm really mm. looking forward to hearing that. Um, but I thought, you know, the Lord of the Rings is not just that it's so long. There are so many characters and each one needs a distinctive voice. I just thought, what a massive thing to do. And I thought he did it fantastically. Mm. I did. I already had the Rob English uh, audiobooks. He was like the Tolkien narrator. And he is beloved. And, you know, people people really enjoy those audiobooks. But there's something about them. They're not for me. There's a... I always found them slightly cold. Mm. You know, he reads them quite almost. He's a bit dry, a bit academic. I mean, some some people say they find it warm. So perhaps you know, maybe it's just me, but they never quite worked for me. And that Andy Circus just just brings such such oh, energy to mm. it. Um, obviously, his golem is fantastic. <laughs> um, and, and when I, you know, there's the, there's the physicality of his performance of, of Gollum in the films, and if you watch footage of him recording the audio, but you know, mm. he's 
spitting on the pop shield. He's gesticulating. He's snarling. He's, you know, he is acting. He's not reading. He's acting. Mm. It's fantastic. Um, it's hard to imagine but, anybody else doing that role. I now. know. But beyond just the, you know, the, his, the sound, you know, the, 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 the cat coughing up a furball sound of his golem. Um, you know the, the interpretation of that character, the sort of the the, the wretched dual personality thing that was kind of it, it's there in the books to a degree, but that was very much emphasised and expanded upon for the movies. And it's amazing how he still manages to to find that in the text, just in the raw text. And there are whole swathes where it is just Smeagol having a conversation with himself and berating himself, and fantastic and. And his Gandalf is very, very, very good. I remember reading an interview with him ahead of doing The Hobbit when he said he had, oh, I had to try really hard not to do the film versions of the characters' mm. voices. They had to be my own. He said, but I, I struggled not to do an Ian McKellen. But I think he does really well. And um, there's something, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but I swear there's something Tony Benn-esque about his Gandalf. <laughs> got that back of the throat. Oh, interesting. Thing, you know. yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was just me. Um, and I think it was quite funny because the chapters in The Lord of the Rings tend to be a fairly uniform length. Um and so therefore the, the the audiobook chapters tend to be the same sort of running time. And I remember I was driving to your house at the time and I was listening to Treebeard and I was surprised that I hadn't got to the end of the chapter by the time I got to your house. And so I wonder then I looked and thought, and it was three hours long. I said, I don't remember Treebeard being an exceptionally long chapter you know in you know any longer than any of the other chapters and then i realized the way she does tree beard's voice he literally wow. it takes a long time and it's, <laughs> it's so good it's just brilliant but i read an interview with him as i said uh, and someone asked him who was your favorite character to voice I think we mentioned this in the last episode, and he said Tom Bombadil, oh, and I yes. thought, oh, fantastic! Mm. He gets it, and and we talked about what a great character Tom Bombadil was last episode, and his infectious sense of joy and and the musicality of him, and you can tell that you know that joy, it just it, it, it it's tangible, mm. you know, the what he's found in that character, and he's so animated and yeah i mean i can't fault them those audiobooks are wonderful and he does most of the appendices as well uh and he just those you know just goes above and beyond and everybody has a distinct voice and and uh, you know he does brilliant monster voices as well for the for the orcs and the mouth of sauron and he's just yeah flawless i would say mm. absolutely flawless and there is a, a lesser-known adaptation of Lord of the Rings. Lesser-known, but also the best, I yes, would say. Yes, I would think so. Um, when we were teenagers, we uh, we went to stay in another place in the countryside. Um, and it was a place called Ilham Hall. In the Peak District. In the Peak District, yes. And uh, we, I don't know if it was planned or if we just started doing it. We had a camera. We had a camera, yeah. <laughs> Which was quite a thing at that time. Oh, yeah. A, a video camera. It was one of those ones that you actually slotted a yep, funky VHS it, it, into. It wasn't a VHS, it was a, it was a high eight handheld ah, right, steady cam. Okay. So it was like 
people won't know what that is these days, but Hi8 tapes is in 8mm, I think, um, and they were like mini VHS tapes mm. that you put in your camcorder and you recorded on them and you could play it back through the viewfinder, but to put it on something that anybody else could watch, you had to plug it, you had to plug the camcorder into the back of your telly with a load <laughs> of complicated phono cables, hook the telly up to a VCR and then record from the camera to the VCR through the telly just oh, to put it on a, on a home video. And we made uh, our own version of the Fellowship of the Ring. We did, and the two, the two of us, yeah. That we went back the next year and yeah. did two towers. And between us, we played each of the characters. Yes, uh, I've still got the VHS of the Fellowship. Have you? Because yeah. I don't have any of them, but oh. I still own Nothing all the to eight. Watch it I've, on. No, I've got all the eight millimeter. Oh, tapes. wonderful! Oh. I've got no means of transferring them. But what? And we've always said, haven't we? One day we will go back, even though we're twenty years older now. <laughs> we will go back. And, and do Return of the King. And it's funny because it'll be almost like we were talking about the, 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 there's the there's the Bakshi cartoon and then there's the Rankin Bass Return of the King. And they're <laughs> yes. completely, they, they don't gel, but it'll be like that. Why, why, why is the sequel just old guys? <laughs> um, and it, I tell you what's really funny, like, I think we showed it to people at the time and they were vaguely amused by it, but it was great. Like, I think I was Gandalf and Sam and you were Frodo and Gimli. Yeah. And it was, sometimes we had to be in scenes with ourselves. Yes. <laughs> There's some good camera cuts where it's going from yeah. me to me or you to you. Mm. It reminds me of that Mitchell and Webb sketch where David Mitchell's playing Pono <laughs> oh, yeah. and Captain Hastings. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I play all the suave debonair types. Um, and but I tell you what was funny about those, you know, some people saw them at the time. It's oh, that's a bit of a mad thing to do. Whereas now, like on TikTok, people do yes, it. Yes, that's I've true. I've seen so many we were things. Pioneers. We were people acting out the Lord of the Rings film or scenes from Lord of the Rings when it's either just like I think there's one where it's two girls doing the entire thing between them, and there's one where it's one guy who does a few scenes playing each character, and I thought. You know, it's amazing. Like, if if we'd have had social media and, yeah. and the internet back when we were kids, we probably would have put all that stuff online. And it made me so happy. I think people are still doing this mad stuff. Yeah. And it made me actually want to go back and make our Return of the King and put it online and embarrass we can ourselves. We put it on TikTok. I mean, I have no idea how TikTok works, but I'm sure you can figure it out. You're good with computers. I'm not on TikTok. I thought I'd drawn the line there. I've done everything from MySpace to Bebo to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And I thought, am I, can I... Can I rest now? <laughs> I'm not ready for another adventure. <laughs> well, we might have to embrace it though, because I think uh, it would be quite funny. It would be good. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. So, did you know that apart from other than our um, Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers films, there were some other films made uh, based on the Lord of the Rings books really? in the early 2000s? Yeah. Oh, I have no memory of them. They must have flopped. Yeah, it was um, a little-known uh, horror director called Peter Jackson. He did, you know, Brain Dead and that kind of stuff. Is he that one that did that weird version of King Kong? That's the uh, one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so he did a Lord of the Rings interpretation. If you he? can imagine that, uh, I'm not sure I can. We are now well over an hour and a half into this yeah. episode. And we haven't got time to go into mm. how much we loved those films, what they meant to us as teenagers, and sort of even more than the films, what that music meant and how it became synonymous with the books. So suffice to say, we absolutely loved them. And mm. there were, of course, as fans, primarily as fans of the books, there were there were things that were missed out. There were things that were done differently. And But 
ultimately, as films in their own right, they are flawless masterpieces, and we absolutely love them. And if you've come this far, you probably want to hear us talk more about Lord of the Rings, because let's face it, everybody else gave up (laughs) two hours ago. So in order to give the films their due in order to do them justice we are going to record a very special episode of a book at breakfast that won't feature on the main feed because this is this is this is for the elite the ones who go above and beyond it's for the crazies the crazy so we are going to record a commentary track to the theatrical edition of the fellowship of the ring of course we prefer the extended but that's too long for us to sit and talk (laughs) without going to the toilet um we are going to record a commentary track where we talk about everything that we loved about the peter jackson films in the context of an adaptation and comparing them to the book and 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 what what they got right and what we think they could have done slightly differently well there wasn't enough pink floyd in them exactly (laughs) yeah i mean you know how i feel about time traveler's wife not using (laughs) ramstein wait till you get started on no um i think if you're not going to have pink floyd have Howard Shaw, that's <laughs> yeah, fine. Have Enya, that's fine. Yeah. Annie Lennox, absolutely fine. No no complaints from me. <laughs> um, if you go to our Bandcamp page, yes, we have set up a Bandcamp page for special additional content. It's like Patreon, but it's free. <laughs> go to bandcamp.com forward slash a book at breakfast and keep an eye out for our Fellowship of the Rings commentary tracks. So it'd be like sitting and having breakfast and tea with us while we talk all things Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, And if you want to support us, we'd really appreciate it if you could go to our Ko-Fi account and chip in a few quid for a cup of tea um, or beer, you know, ho, ho, ho to the bottle (laughs) I go. Let's face it, we call it a book of breakfast. We'll probably be recording this one in the evening because there are only so many hours in the day, only so many breakfasts (laughs) we can get through. And as if you'd think now that we were done with the Lord of the Rings. We've talked about the audiobooks, we've talked about the, the films, we've talked about the radio play, but by the time this episode airs, there will be a brand new adaptation of the Lord of the Rings from Amazon. Sort of. I mean, we're, we're <laughs> all we know at the point of recording, because we're recording this a fair bit in advance, is that it takes place, we've seen the teaser trailer and we know it takes place in the second age of Middle-earth, which I know a lot of people are saying, well, that's not Lord of the Rings. But as far as I know, they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion, they don't have the rights to Unfinished Tales. So, strictly speaking, they're making a, an adaptation based on what we know about the second age from the appendices in, in the Lord of the Rings. So it is, I would argue, strictly speaking, Lord of the Rings. a Lord of the Rings mm. adaptation. So we're still not done. Two breakfasts in and we're still not done. So you're going to have to come back next week where we have Elevenses and we will give you our thoughts on the first episode or however however deep we are into the season by that point of uh, Amazon's uh, Rings of Power series. Mm. I think there are about three pages in in the actual Lord of the Rings about the downfall of Numenor. So we'll see. I know some people have been complaining that HarperCollins have released a new set of books, Fellowship, Two Towers, and Return of the King, and on each cover it's Galadriel, uh, Elrond, and possibly Sauron, or maybe the Witch King, as depicted in the Amazon series. Oh. And a lot of people are unhappy. They're saying that that's not related to the Lord of the Rings. But I thought, well, you know, Galadriel's in Lord of the Rings, Elrond's in... Yeah. He's, not, he's not in Two Towers, but, you know, those three characters, <laughs> they're in the Lord of the Rings. So I think, I think it's acceptable. And I'm 
cautiously optimistic for the series. I'm, I'm, I have no idea what to expect. I'm very apprehensive because I don't know how much they'll be making up from scratch. Um, but the only thing I really know in terms of the cast, uh, Morphid Clark is playing Galadriel, who was Saint Maud. Well, who oh, was who is it? Right. Yes, wow. okay. the main character in Saint Maud, and she was phenomenal in that film. Well, as long as it's got the Doctor and the TARDIS and time travel in it, I'm going to love it. Um, does Radagast count? Yeah, of course. Well, he's not in it. <laughs> All right, five. we promise. We promise. We're gonna get through this together. We're nearly done with the Lord of the Rings. One more, one more episode where one we will briefly episode, a brief eleven minutes of elevenses, yes. and we will give you our thoughts on Amazon's uh, Lord of the Rings Rings of Power series. Until then, we bid you adieu.